Uh, do me a favor on your way out if you've just recently begun attending or uh, today would be your first Sunday in joining with us here at Veritas Church. Make a point to introduce yourself to me. I'll be at the back door after the service. This morning we're going to be considering the portion of God's Word in Mark chapter 7. So would you take with me your copy of God's Word and let's turn to Mark chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, there is one in front of you in the, the seat pack there in the back pocket. You'll find our portion of text this morning on page 791. Let's hear God's word together. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God to hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and... Whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me, it is Corban, that is, given to God. Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down. And many such things you do. Verse 14. And he called the people to him again, and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? And thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, Foolishness, all these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Would you join in praying with me, asking that the Lord would help us as we consider his word this morning? Well, Father, we look to you this morning as the one who is 
the great giver of the word of life, the one who, in your kindness and goodness, that you teach sinners in the way. Father, we rejoice to know and to hear and to be reminded of even again this morning that you have not left us as we are, but that you have seen fit in your goodness and mercy to send instruction, to announce the way of hope, to help us see that there is such a thing as true defilement and the hope of true holiness. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would be our chief shepherd this morning, that you would be the lifter of our heads, that you would show us not only the loud thunder of the law, but the great glory of the gospel. Help us this morning to hear and receive with hearts of meekness, Lord, that it might grow up and bear an abundant harvest to your glory, we pray. Amen. Purity. It's what's before us this morning in the matter of this text. And purity is a concern and a motivation that lies under much religious practice. It's a concern that has moved, really, and spawned entire movements within modern Christian culture, creating such things like purity rings, purity conferences, as zealous participants attempted to kiss dating goodbye and others vowed to be promise keepers. But as these good-intentioned efforts progressed, many were left asking, have I really changed? Am I really pure? And this concern over purity, it's not a modern invention, something that we just stumbled upon. How faithful worshipers pursue a holy God has left many people chasing after extra-biblical inventions and many man-made restrictions. And the Apostle Paul, he actually addressed this very concern in the early church warning God's people that this allure of extra-biblical restraints and outward zeal ultimately does nothing for the heart. He would write to the Colossians in Colossians, uh, Colossians chapter 2, These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They appear very attractive, and even in carrying out these appearances of wisdom, he says they actually do nothing in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And so when we begin to think about purity, I believe we are best helped by asking a more foundational question, by starting with this question. What has sin done to us? If we want to rightly define this category of purity, let's begin with the problem. What has sin done to us? In Scripture, it's so important to see that sin is not merely bad choices, but sin is actually this evil power that rules and destroys, and even when its reign is ultimately broken, it still wages war against us. And Scripture warns and Scripture teaches us how sin actually numbs the soul, how sin blinds the eyes of faith, so much so that men and women will still die in their sin while still being quite pleased with themselves. 
that that is the deceptiveness that sin actually brings. And when we say, what has sin done to us? We have an eye towards all of that. I bring all of this up because if we are going to think rightly about purity and defilement, holiness and sin, we need to use the categories that the Bible uses and we need to take seriously the warning that Scripture gives to us. And the portion of Scripture that is before us this morning, an issue is raised by these scribes and these Pharisees that really drives right at the heart of holiness. Here's the big idea of this portion of Scripture. Because all of this has to do with answering the following question. What makes somebody holy? And what is it that really defiles us? That is underneath everything that the scribes press upon Jesus and that Jesus responds with in teaching. The scripture answers that question in this way. True defilement is actually much worse than you think. But the purity that Christ brings is far greater than you could imagine. So let's consider how this plays out in Mark chapter 7. It begins with a confrontation. This confrontation that's explained in verses 1 through 5. What Mark tells us is that the Pharisees and some of the scribes came from Jerusalem to find Jesus and eventually asked him a particular question. Now Jerusalem is about 90 miles from Capernaum, where Jesus would have been. And the fact that these religious leaders would have made such a journey, it strongly suggests that they are highly motivated to observe Jesus, to find fault, because Mark has already told us they are seeking to destroy him. Perhaps they've even heard of his popularity in Jerusalem. So who are these men? Mark mentions two groups of religious leaders that came out to Jesus down to Capernaum. He mentions, first of all, the religious leaders who are really the experts of the law. They studied, they interpreted, and they taught the Torah. And they, in teaching, passed along these traditions that had been handed down concerning really the interpretation and the application of the law. They are the scriptural experts. If you wanted to know not only, hey, what scroll is that found in, but what does that mean, the scribes would be who you would want to listen to. But he also mentions the Pharisees. The Pharisees are best understood as separatists a sect, from their weekly routines to how they, they ordered their week down to the very clothes that they wore, their whole manner of life served to highlight their separation from all that is unclean and their devotion to holiness. These are the groups that have come down from Jerusalem to Galilee. And remember, these groups of men hate Jesus. They hate him. They're seeking to destroy him. Not only because that he claims to be God, 
but because as we've seen on numerous occasions already, he does not hold to their tradition. This is who they are, but what did they say? What was it that they actually brought against Jesus? They've come to Jesus to find some practice, some teaching that they could use and pile upon their cause to to find fault with Jesus. And so this committee for finding fault, it was soon rewarded as they uncover this apparent oversight in the disciples of Jesus. And so then they come to Jesus with a particular question. The primary concern is in verse 5. The concern was over the religious tradition of washing before eating bread. And so Mark gives us really a simple thumbnail sketch here of the sort of measures that the Pharisees took to display their religious devotion to purity and their distinction from this ungodly world that surrounded them. Please understand, this washing is not about hygiene. It's about holiness. This washing has everything to do with ceremonial tradition that is much more about germ theory. It's it's more really about the display of an apparent zeal for holiness. The Old Testament law required the priests of Israel to wash their hands in a certain way before they entered the holy place to offer sacrifices. That's what's commanded. However, there was no law that required the ordinary Israelite to wash or go through ritual cleansing before they ate their bread. But somewhere along the line, some scribe, some rabbi who interpreted the scriptures had added to God's law, saying that the requirements were not only for the priests, but true zeal, true devotion. And of course, as we read the scriptures, we can imply then that you must, you must wash in a certain way. And what their regulations had done really far exceeded the regulations that the law of God imposed upon God's people. Ceremonial washing had really become this way to distinguish your personal holiness and your separation from everything that was unclean. And to not do so, it really called into question your whole devotion to God. What kind of worshiper are you? How could you not follow in this tradition? It called into question your actual holiness and commitment to purity. And the Pharisees, you have to understand, they were exemplary models of this tradition. As Mark says, not only did they wash their hands in a certain ceremonial way before eating, he calls out other practices. Every time they left the marketplace, they would wash, lest they had unknowingly brushed up against some unclean person. And it wasn't just devotion to what God had commanded them to do, but devotion to the visual appearance that everyone would know I'm washing out of my devotion and my commitment to God. See, the the fault that they found was not some obscure footnote of a technicality. It was a direct accusation. Jesus, why do your disciples the very men that you teach and that you lead, why do your disciples become so flippant? And why do they ignore the established tradition of our leadership? 
Basically, what they're saying is, Jesus, do you care about holiness or not? That was the conflict. But this confrontation, it leads to a correction. And that's what we see in verses 6 following. Because of this accusation, Jesus replies with a very sharp rebuke. He rebukes their misplaced emphasis and then points to an example of this wrong thinking. He goes after the wrong emphasis and then says, because of that, here's a wrong practice. So the first correction is the correction of a mistaken emphasis. Look back at verse 6. He said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Verse 8, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Once again, I love what Jesus does. He points these supposed experts in the scripture back to scripture and says, have you not read? Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you? If I'm going to speak to you about this, let me just point you back to the prophet Isaiah. And the sting of his rebuke here is that they're simply renewing and repeating the same error that Israel had repeated in generations past. Faithful observance to outward religious practice while neglecting the matters of the heart. So this issue that's here, Jesus makes plain, it's that of hypocrisy. It's a word that we're all familiar with. It's a word that we despise. Nobody wants to be a hypocrite. Nobody wants to put on a display of of a supposed action or habit or idea or identity of who you are, but then behind that supposed display, there's something else. It has everything to do with intentional deception. We all know there's gaps between the ideal and the reality, but hypocrisy is not just that there are gaps. Hypocrisy would say there are no gaps. This is the way it is in here when it's not. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites. The mistake of the Pharisees and the scribes is that of a wrong emphasis. Your lips move. You pray the prayers religiously, faithfully, devotionally. You sing praises. But there is a disconnect between your lips and your heart. There's something severely broken. And Christ says that this sort of worship, a disconnect between what is seen or heard and what is reality, the intention of putting a a front for what is seen to hide what is reality, he said this sort of worship is empty. It is hollow. It is a shell. It is vanity. That's his description in verse 7. And Christ says that it is this way for one reason. They continue to confuse tradition and sound doctrine. Do you notice that's the the sting of the rebuke, verse 8? You leave the commandment of God to hold to the tradition of men. This is really reflected in much of the prophet Isaiah. Remember how we said the prophet Isaiah becomes such a helpful illumination upon the gospel of Mark. So many times it becomes the interpretive lens that provides the 
really the, the depth of field and the, the detail that we need to get at what Mark is saying. And do you remember the opening rebuke in Isaiah chapter 1? What does God bring against his people? He says in verse 11, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? Again, not that you've neglected the practice. There's an abundance of worship going on. I've had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who's required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons, your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They've become a burden to me, and I'm wary of bearing them. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you. That is the correction that Jesus brings against them, this wrong emphasis. It's a mistaken emphasis in verse 8. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. This misplaced emphasis is upon words over and against heart. And it is a reflection of the root problem, which is an exaltation of tradition over and against the commandment of God. In short, here's what Jesus says. You love you more than God. You love your words more than God's words. You love God's, excuse me, your traditions over and against God's commandments. You have it all backwards. And so he provides this correction of a mistaken emphasis. But this emphasis does something. Ideas have consequences, and there is a mistaken practice. In Exhibit A, he points to this practice called Corbin. And that's what he outlines in verses 9 through 13. And so for the second time, Jesus strikes at the root of the problem. Look at verse 9. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Jesus points to this reality of this ongoing practice within religious Israel of that day, which is called Corbin. What was it? Well, Jesus says, let's do two things. Let's lay aside, lay alongside the commandment of God right next to your tradition, and let's compare and contrast. What is the commandment of God? Well, he says in verse 10, Moses said, and then he cites the fifth commandment, And then the civil application of this in Exodus 21. Simply, honor your father. Honor your father and your mother. God said. God commanded. But you say. Do you notice the contrast in verses 11 and 12? If a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. God said, you say. What was going on? Well, the scribes, remember their job to interpret and apply God's law? The scribes were teaching in that day, telling adult children that there was a way to get around this burden of honoring your father and mother, especially as they aged, and you had a moral responsibility to care for them in some way. 
the scribes essentially said, hey, we've got a, I don't want to call it a loophole, but it's here. You could find a way around that. Just keep in mind, yes, honor your father and mother, but yes, there's something else we must keep in mind. We must keep in mind God and his worth and that he deserves all of us. He deserves all that we have. And so we want to give to God out of the abundance of what we have. And so if you have a particular investment, precious oil, if you have some coins that are saved, perhaps there's great wealth in a home that you have, you can declare that to be Corbin. This is devoted to God. In a sense, you've earmarked that provision for God. And by this post-it note sort of dedication that you could put upon this or that, you've dedicated it to God. And because it's dedicated to God, mom and dad, how could I rob from God to provide for you? I'm zealous in my worship for God. And so this provision, though it could go to you to provide for you, it's been given to God. It's Corbin. God said, but you say. You've rejected to establish. This is the exhibit that Christ points to, and the kicker was that you need not actually bring that to the temple or cash it in. You could just theoretically earmark that for God. You could double dip for the glory of God. And it relieved the son or the daughter from this honor of father and mother that God commanded. And again, Jesus restates for the third time the heart of the problem. Do you see it in verse 13? Thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down. And many such things you do. Meaning, I've got exhibit B through Z, but we'll leave those off for now. What's the real problem here? Is Jesus just saying that tradition is the culprit? Is this teaching an indictment against the uptight religious stuffy types? If only they would just lay aside their traditions and just stick to the Bible, then everything would be okay. Is that the heart of what Jesus is getting at? Be careful here. Because if we vilify tradition, we will eventually find ourselves at, odd, at odds with Scripture itself. Do you know that tradition is not a bad word? This same word that Christ uses three times here in Mark 7, tradition, it's used elsewhere in Scripture. It's actually used positively in very central portions of Scripture. The Apostle Paul would write to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 11, Now I commend you because you remember me and everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Paul had traditions. He delivered them to the church of Corinth and he praised them when they walked in them. He would also write to the church at Thessalonica, 2 Thessalonians 2.15. The exhortation is, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the Bible. That's not what he says. Stand firm and hold to the traditions. 
that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Paul, hold fast to tradition. Do you not know that Jesus hates tradition? That's why I said, be careful. It's not that tradition is the vilified black hat bad guy. It is the issue that the scribes and the Pharisees sought to usurp the authority of Scripture by their traditions. Traditions are a wonderfully good and helpful practice insofar as they are subordinate to Scripture and summarize sound doctrine. When we have helpful traditions that are passed down either orally or written, as Paul said, that support, clarify, and summarize the Bible, then those traditions are good because they're pointing us to what the Bible teaches. So we need to be very careful to not read portions like this in Mark 7 and say, the problem is tradition. No, that's not what Jesus was getting at. When traditions serve as the guide and the pattern that summarize sound doctrine that aid us in godly living, they're a good thing. So don't be too quick to point the blame in the wrong direction. Jesus is not condemning tradition. He condemns the habit of abandoning God's word to establish some other tradition. But here's the second thing. It's also wrong to assume that tradition is the problem of the other guy. How good we are at that when we read our Bibles. Do you find yourself doing that? Even in this room as we hear God's word read, do you catch yourself in that temptation? That's really good. They should hear that. It's so subtle. And it's easy to do it here. Those scribes, those Pharisees. I can think of a few scribes and Pharisees in my life. They should really hear this. Tradition is the problem of them. Surely not me, Lord. But I think it would be a mistake to assume that this really only applies to the overly formal, well-dressed types. That's where tradition really grows, like black mold. I think we'd be wise to recognize that there is a reactionary tradition that's taken hold of much of the modern evangelical church. It's a sort of tradition that reflects the values of our age and our culture. It's actually the tradition of informality. It's the tradition of independence, of individualism. It's the non-traditional tradition. And by definition of it becoming what is normative and accepted and a pattern this tradition of individualism and the love of supposed informality that that means true authenticity, we build up a tradition in our anti-tradition. We live in a day and a culture that is marked by this new sort of tradition. It sounds like this. Do whatever works for you. We know that exists out in our world. But Christian, you and I are not protected from that same thinking. It dwells within each of us. It's the air that we breathe. It's the culture that we live in. This tradition that says, do what works for you. 
Who are they to say how your life should be lived? You're the best interpreter of the Bible. What do they know? You need to do what's authentic to you. And then you live your life accordingly. That is the tradition of the day. And that is the tradition that can dominate Christian practice today. And so in this way, the problem of the scribes and the Pharisees, it persists today. We still face the constant temptation to leave off the commandment of God to establish our tradition. And we often have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God to establish the traditions of individualism and what I think this means sort of Christianity. Anytime that you or I find ourselves exalting our own opinions, our own emotions, our own experiences, over and against the commandment of Scripture, we make the same mistake of the scribes and the Pharisees. We've left the commandment of God to hold fast to our particular tradition. Be wary of statements like, I just feel like God is... What I think this means for me is... Those are so subtle, but they creep in. And it's just the front door that says, Welcome, new tradition. Why don't you put aside the word of God and let's just listen to what you think for a minute. We need to be so careful even in our day and age. Empty worship and vain Christianity, it persists today. Anytime you or I find ourselves downplaying the commandment of God to uphold and establish preferences, opinions, or assumptions. Jesus sharpens the point of this correction a bit more by thirdly making clarification. There's this confrontation. Jesus corrects it, but then he moves in a little bit further, sharpens the focus, and says, let me clarify what I mean. And so in seeking to make application upon the previous dialogue, Jesus calls the people to himself, and look at verse 14, how he clarifies the guiding principle. That's what he does first. He clarifies the guiding principle. He called the people to him again, and he said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. We see what Jesus is doing. Jesus' corrective statement was contrary to every teaching and emphasis within religious Israel of that day. The assumption of his critics was that to eat with ceremonially unwashed hands, it defiles the food, and therefore the eater. And so the defilement, as they saw, it worked its way from the outside to the inside, and Jesus says, no, 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 it's actually the exact opposite. You're, you're looking at it backwards. You're looking at the reverse image. He flips it around on its head and says, actually, if you want to understand true defilement, it's a great topic. If you want to talk about true defilement, Let's do that. But let's begin by recognizing that it has nothing to do with what's out there. True defilement has everything to do with what's in here. And then he clarifies the real problem in verses 17 and following. 
he entered the house and left the people. And his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. And parenthetically, Mark says, thus he declared all foods clean. Our clue that this new covenant is breaking upon us. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. And then he lists, from out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within a person, and they defile a person. The explanation that Jesus gives in verses 18 through 19, it's straightforward enough. It's simple anatomy. Food goes into the mouth, into your stomach, and passes through your body. It's just food. It's not a matter of what goes into it in verse 18, but what comes out of it in verse 20. And again, Jesus draws attention back to the heart, just as he did back in verse 6. If you want to understand true holiness, if you want to understand this category of real defilement, we must talk about the heart. And Jesus lists 12 examples of defilement. He lists multiple sinful practices that would have been the very thing the Pharisees would have avoided at all costs. And Jesus says, look, the problem is worse than you think. It's not that they're evading, invading from some foreign culture. It's that that invasion has already taken up residence within you. The enemy is within. Your heart is where all of this comes from. So do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's affirming and denying. He's affirming that there is such a thing as defilement. Your concern is valid. But he's denying that the problem is what they say it is. He's saying the problem is actually far worse. It is far, far worse. All of your external ceremonies, all the traditions, all your commitments, they look so noble, they look so good, but they actually do nothing for your condition because your problem is so much worse. It's like putting a Band-Aid on bone cancer. Great effort. Zero help. And as disciples of Jesus, we must move from seeing corruption of sin as something that's out there that's going to invade to seeing it as a mode of the heart that taints and corrupts everything I think, do, and say. Our root problem, friends, it's not our biological disorders. It's not our parents. It's not our society. It's not our government. It is our corrupt heart. So how do we know then if we are serious about matters of purity, holiness, and worship of God? Well, according to Jesus, we are primarily concerned 
with the corruption of our heart and not exclusively focused upon visible outward behavior. That is primary. It's foundational. What he's saying is that our great concern as his followers, as those who bear his name, our great concern is not only what we do, but why we do it. Do you understand the distinction there? It's the sin, we could say, that's underneath the sin. Why are my loves so disordered that I desire what God calls evil? Why is that? It's not just that I lie. It's that why is that even a temptation? Why am I so driven to be deceitful in this way? Why am I unwilling to admit fault? But I am so good at despising others because of their fault. Again, we're not asking what, but why? Why is it that I lie to others when they ask how I'm doing? What is it that I'm not wanting to expose? And why is that? All these things come from within. And they defile you and I. Christianity gets to the heart real fast. Jesus, he is the great physician who deals with us in perfect wisdom. He deals with us in loving care. And we come to him complaining of symptoms, pointing to things, saying, look at this. Look how messed up this is. This hurts here. Thinking that's our real problem, pointing at all of our symptoms. But he refuses to treat your symptoms alone. He goes to the root. He says, that's great that that's what you feel right now. Let's talk about the heart. And he is this great, wise physician that cuts straight to the reality of not just what you do or what's been done to you, but what's the real issue that's plaguing us? What is the real problem underneath those other real problems? Christianity gets to the heart. It says two things. Christianity says, first and foremost, you must be clean. Don't downplay what Jesus is saying here. Christianity explicitly says to every single man, woman, and child created in his image, you must be clean. And friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, and you're hearing this and even seeing some of these things listed out that Jesus speaks of, don't be tempted to read this list of what Jesus calls out as sin and just shrug your shoulders and say, yeah, I see that, but nobody's perfect. Here these Christians go again. They're just uptight about rule-keeping and moralism. Please don't do that. The Bible is so very clear that the decisions you make, the words you speak, the actions you take have eternal consequences. Paul would write to the church at Corinth. He said, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? You must be clean. Do not be deceived, is his next line. Neither the sexually immoral, 
nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. He would write to the church in Colossae, Colossians 3, verse 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry, and then verse 6, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. You must be clean. There's no way around it. To fail to take the words of Scripture seriously will lead to and mean a corruption of soul that leads not only to a life of bondage and a life of misery, but ultimately what Scripture warns, it leads to standing before the holy, righteous wrath of God. The offense of sin is so great because it is against an eternal God who is infinitely just and he is infinitely good and his wrath is the right response against the arrogance of our unbelieving pride. And the scriptures are so clear that it is an eternal judgment that God condemns this sort of life to an eternity in hell actually given a body that is fit to endure an eternity of judgment. Christianity says you must be clean. And Christian, Christ says to you as well, you you must deal with the heart. You have an obligation to put to death the deeds of sinful flesh. You have an obligation by the very fact that you are a new creation. It is impossible to be united to Christ and yet not seek to grow in godliness. Those two things cannot live together. Again, Colossians 3. If, or as we may say, since, then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are of the earth. For you have died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also, you will appear with him in glory. And then he says in verse 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you? Christian, this is who you are, dead to sin, alive in Christ. And when Christ returns, you'll appear with him in glory because this is true of you. Put sin to death. You must put to death the deeds of the flesh. And do you understand the emphasis of the must in that scripture? Christians are not content with remaining sin. Christians have a growing and settled dislike for unconfessed sin. So when Paul says we must put to death the deeds of the flesh, this 
must, this obligation has everything to do with the reality of the new nature that resides within us. A Christian who has no concern to put to death the deeds of the flesh, to deal with the heart, as Jesus is saying here, it calls into question the very reality of that newness. You've been raised with Christ. Put to death the deeds of the flesh. But Scripture not only says you must be clean. Scripture also says you can be clean. You must be clean. And you can be clean, is what the Scriptures announce. Yes, there is this polluted fountain that flows forth from the core of who we are. But that is not the end of the story. And the enduring hope of the gospel is not simply that God wipes away the guilt of defilement, which is wonderful. The announcement of the gospel is that he wipes away and unites us to himself, giving us a new nature. God deals with the heart. Scripture says you can be clean. Hear the promise of God that he makes to his people in Ezekiel 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. This is what God promises to his people and what he does by what we call regeneration, being born again. Christian, would you hear me? There is hope for your ongoing fight against sin. There is wonderful hope. When we answer the question, what has sin done to us? We answer honestly. And we say, total corruption. It has ruined me to the core. We look it straight in the face and we say, that's what sin has done. But there's a glimmer in our eye. And our mouth starts to crack a smile. Because as soon as we finish saying that, the Christian says, but I am not without hope. Because let me ask you a follow-up question to what has sin done to me. I will ask, what has grace done to us? What has God in his grace done to us? When God causes us to be born again, he imparts new life, giving us new nature, giving us new desires. The bondage of sin is broken. The iron grip of sin's rule no longer enslaves me. The nature of sin It remains. It remains with us. But it is crucified in Christ. It's as good as dead, but it still calls out commands to me. As it grows weaker and weaker and weaker, and eventually I will be glorified, and it will be silenced. We have a new nature. The Spirit of Christ now animates us right now to live to God's pleasure. 
And so what that means is that grace and sin reside in the same heart. And there is a great battle. And that is why I say, Christian, there is hope for you in your fight against sin. Romans 8, 11. Memorize it. Love it. Rejoice in it. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells within you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who now dwells within you. That is what I mean when I say God by his grace animates us to live to the glory of Christ. You have the spirit of God, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead that empowers your new, new nature to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Friend, if you want to take seriously the teaching of Scripture, then listen to what it promises. God is not only righteous and just, He is merciful. And out of an overflowing wellspring of love, the Father sent King Jesus to ransom and redeem defiled sinners. That is what he does. And that's why Christ, going back to Mark chapter 1, would stand and say, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe the gospel. The Father has sent the Son to redeem a defiled and rebellious people. Repent. What that means is that we see our thoughts, our deeds, and our desires and actions for what they are. Unbelief and rebellion. And we turn from them. And in our repenting, we're believing. We're believing the warnings. We're believing the promises. And then we accept and receive and rest upon Christ alone for forgiveness, for hope, and for real change. That is what this means. The very thing that we need, Christ provides. And he deals with us in our defilement, and he is the one who actually gives us true purity. He is the one who gives us true holiness. So let's look to this one who does this now. Our God and our Father, we have heard your word, and now we ask that you would cause it to bear much fruit within our church. Bring the work of conversion, of transformation, of ongoing sanctification that you alone can cause to be. Lord, would you cause us to see the great wonder and the joyous mystery of what it means to be united to your Son? May that spiritual and that eternal reality transform our watchfulness, our endurance, may it transform our patient obedience and our very driving motive to all that we do. Lord, we come to you just as you've called us to do. We repent believingly and we believe repentantly. You have the words of life. Where else could we go? And so it's to you that we look and it's in you that we rest. Amen. As we come to the table this morning, church, we see the same gospel preached to us that we've just heard displayed in these very simple elements of bread and cup. 
For his body, Christ's body broken, his blood spilt, it testifies of victory over sin and it testifies of the assurance of our forgiveness as his people. What this means is that we have assurance in approaching the true and the living God because God has dealt with the greatest issue. God has dealt with our defilement. Hear the call of Hebrews 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean. There's Ezekiel. From an evil conscience and our bodies washed pure with water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? For he who promised is faithful. Christian, we come to this table with full assurance that our defilement is clean and our union with Christ is sure because he who promised such things is faithful. We come on the basis of grace through faith. This table, it's been instituted by our Lord Jesus And by giving and receiving the bread, his his death is shown forth. It is put on a billboard placarded before us that says Christ receives sinners. He cleanses from sin. And they can surely be accepted in his sight. That's why we say that it's by faith that we are made partakers of his body and of his blood with all its benefits and where we receive spiritual nourishment as we hear and we see yet again. Christ receives sinners. That is why we say each week who this table is for. If you've been formally brought into the membership of this church or you're visiting and you're a member of another gospel preaching church that holds to this same wonderful news, you've been baptized upon your profession of faith, join with us. Eat and drink with reverence and great joy in what Christ has done. We're going to pass the bread and the cup to you. Receive those uh, elements as they come to you. If you're not receiving them, just pass to the next person next to you. Again, parents, if you've got a slew of kids between you and the other adult and you need to help out, it's okay to stand up, move that along. Hold the bread, hold the cup once they're all passed out. We're going to eat and we're going to drink together. And to prepare our hearts for this meal and for what it testifies, we are going to sing. We are going to set our minds upon the truth that say it is well. It's a hymn that speaks of why we can actually have peace in the midst of sin, in the midst of affliction. So let's look to Christ as we consider coming to the table, and then we'll eat and drink together.